first scripture reading, we actually have two New Testament readings. Our first scripture reading is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 14, beginning at verse 7, page 873 in that Blue Bible. Luke, chapter 14. This is a Sabbath day. It's a dinner. It's a fellowship meal, if you will, at one of the rulers of the Pharisees' houses. So you already know that there's lots of issues that will come up there. Right? And so here's one. It starts in verse 7 through 11. Now Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up high. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And now we turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Picking up at verse 6, it's page 1017 as we continue marching our way through this series, Memories, Manners, and Mandates for God's Minority People. We've been focusing on 1 Peter. This is the end of 1 Peter, and we will jump next week right into 2 Peter, and that'll be part of this series as well. And so, picking up at verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ. What I've read to you from the Gospel according to Luke and from 1 Peter is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, gentle and lowly in heart, pull us ever deeper into this true grace of God and aid us to stand firm in it. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide with some space there for notes, pictures, question marks, whatever. So I'm on this NORAD kick. Having been stationed there, it's just been lingering in my head, and I mentioned one last week. Here's another one. On the backside of NORAD, North American Air Defense Command at Colorado Springs up in Cheyenne Mountain, on the backside of NORAD, there used to be, I don't know if it's still there, but there used to be a lone guard shack. It was inside of a fence with concertina wire across the top. What happened was that NORAD has the front entrance that everybody remembers, And then it burrows through the mountain. And then there's this large facility inside the mountain. Yes, it's all true. 
And then there's this backside where the tunnel just goes on out to the back. And it's that backside that almost nobody ever, ever frequented is where this lone guard shack was to guard the back entrance on the facility. On the west side of the shack, so the guard shack faces the north, faces the back door of NORAD. On the west side, which is going up the mountain, going up Cheyenne Mountain, that's where there was a hollow. There was like two ranges or two parts of the mountain were coming together, and so it kind of had this crevice there, this divide that went way up into the melting, you know, way up high, and so it was the place where all the melting snow and rain would run down. And the whole region was a tumble of boulders climbing up the mountain, up into the blue sky, and sometimes the snowy regions above. Well, as a lone sentry, on many a midnight shift, it could be a very spooky place. The only lights you had were just the perimeter lights in here, and then everything else was shadowy to some extent. The moonlight, when it would come out, would bring out greater shadows with trees dancing sometimes and boulders casting shadows. And it could be a spooky place with all of that. One late, dark evening, while guarding that rear entrance, movement among the boulders caught my eye. First off, there shouldn't be any movement unless it's a deer. I'm just going to tell you, right? Movement caught... Uh, among the boulders caught my eye. It didn't take long to realize it was a man in camo, camouflage uniform, slinking and jumping from boulder to boulder, making his way down. Well, after calling the control desk, I need support. <laughs> I tried to make him stop. All you could do was say, halt, 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 unless he crossed the fence, then you could shoot him. But he was on the outside of the fence. Halt, halt, halt. Tried to make him stop, but he just kept coming down. And once he was on the level ground where I was at, he ran around my perimeter fence and broke out down the access road. Thankfully, he was apprehended down the road by, what, by the response team I had called for. They came upon him and caught him really quick, and there it was. What we came to find out is that this poor soul, a special operations guy, had been at the mental hospital down at the bottom at Fort Carson. It was a huge, huge army installation down at the bottom of Cheyenne Mountain. He had been at the mental institution, or the mental hospital at Fort Carson. He had escaped because he was going to come up to NORAD to take care of the communists who had taken it over. Yikes! That means I was a target, right? That's what that would have meant. So, yes, it was scary. Well, my friends, to survive as a century, one really had to do all they could to stay alert. So keep that picture in mind as we address these final verses in 1 Peter. Here in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through, through 14, Peter wants us to be submissive and sure, to be sober and sharp, and to be sanguine and solid. There's the three points. So verses 6 through 7, be submissive and sure. Notice that 6 and 7 flow right out of verse 5. Right? Isn't that how verse 5 ends? Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. In all of our humility toward one another, verse 5, there is a gamble. There's a risk. I mean, people are people. Sin happens inside the household of God. 
If you didn't know this, I hate to inform you, but total depravity does not stop at the church door and jump over there into the umbrella stand to wait until you get ready to leave to jump back on you when you walk out. Therefore, to plunge in and take the risk of humility toward one another, we have to be submissive to God. We have to be submissive to our faithful Creator, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who caused us to be born again to a living hope and a lively inheritance through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have to be submissive to Him. And we have to be sure of Him. In other words, we have to be convinced that what the reliable God says, the reliable God does. And so, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon Him, because He cares for you. That's my friends, clothing ourselves with humility toward one another, in verse 5, is encompassed by is bundled up in our humility toward God. The God whom we trust in, the God whom we rely upon. And if you don't know this, here's another startling fact. If you have trust issues with God, you will have trust issues with one another, and often vice versa. If you have trust issues with one another inside the household of God, you will often have trust issues with the God of the household. But further, notice that Peter is simply following the two-edged promise of our Lord Jesus that we heard over in the Gospel according to Luke. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, we need to step back into verse 5 briefly to get us even more into verse 6 and 7. Notice that at the end of verse 5, Peter is quoting Proverbs 3, and it's a summarization of much of the Old Testament, that the God who opposes the proud gives grace to the humble. And the very first thing you notice is that God hates pride. God opposes the proud. He hates pride. Here's an example from Proverbs 16 and verse 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16.5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. It's very interesting that the Hebrew word abomination, toavah, comes up over in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 when the Lord is laying out all of these sexual, socially sexual aberrations that get the Canaanites God's judgment. And he reserves the term toavah for one specific sin, Specifically, when a man lays with another man as with a woman, it is toavah, an abomination. And then he encompasses all the sins he's mentioned as toavah. Very interesting. Notice here that arrogance, pride, is just as reprehensible in the eyes of God and in the nose of God as is any sexual aberration out there. Pride. He hates pride. Why is that? Because pride demands that God submit its to its whims and ways. Pride demands that God check with my desires and my focus. 
Pride demands that God's ambitions must match my ambitions. And if he doesn't, then I am entitled to force my way against other people and against God. Thus, God hates pride. Maybe St. Augustine was correct when he declared that pride is the original sin. But God gives grace to the humble. You heard it in our call to worship where God is describing himself as high and holy from Isaiah 57. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And with him who is of a humble and contrite spirit or lowly and contrite spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. In fact, in Isaiah 66 and verse 2, the end of it, God goes on to say, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Yes, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And notice that humility and heeding God's word in Isaiah 66 too, that humility and heeding God's word go hand in glove. It's just like good King Josiah. I know you all know the story, but it's 2 Kings chapter 22. Good King Josiah who became king at 8. And then at 16, as they were remodeling and, and refurbishing the temple that had been in such disuse and disarray for so many decades, while the priests were in there cleaning out the temple, they find a copy of God's law and they come and they run to Josiah and they say, we found the word of the Lord. And they unroll it, and they begin to read it to Josiah. What does Josiah do? Josiah tears his clothes, and he begins to weep. And so God says this about Josiah, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Humility and heeding the word of God go hand in glove. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time and proper time, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Lastly, my friends, of this point, since real born-again humility, real born-again humility, is sure of God's reliability. Therefore, it submits to God's justice and to God's timing at the proper time. At the proper time. I wrote a whole letter on it this last Wednesday. I think there's copies on the credenza. If you didn't read it. When is the proper time? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that at the proper time He may exalt you. Well, when is the proper time? That's part of the trust. That's part of the trust. It's God's time that is the proper time. Thus, my friends, our Lord Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And so I ask you, he who humbled himself under the mighty hand of his father, when was it the proper time for the father to exalt his son? When? Three days after hope died. 
The Son of God humbled himself under the mighty hand of God and was slaughtered upon the cross and buried in a tomb. And there he lay for three days. And when all possibility of hope was dead, he then exalted his son, raising him from the dead, body, blood, bones, toenails, and hair. My friends, humble submission knows that my time is not the proper time. It's God's time. And why do we know that? Because we look at Jesus. And so humble submission knows that the proper time may only be, possibly only be, when Jesus returns and openly acknowledges us and acquits us in the day of judgment and makes us perfectly blessed to the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 38. Dear friends, true gospel-wrought humility is an act of true faith, submissive and sure. And so Peter points out another thing to do. Now that judgment has begun at the household of God, and what is it we're to do? We're to be submissive and sure toward God. But also he goes on in verses 8 and 9, be sober and sharp. Be sober and sharp, verses 8 and 9. As God has begun judgment at his household, somehow notice that the evil one can become the instrument of God's judgment. That's how he puts it in a sense here. Verse 8, be sober, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Somehow the evil one can be the instrument. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And you know that. In Isaiah 10, you know that God used wicked Assyria to be his instrument of discipline upon his people. You know, in the book of Habakkuk, God used wicked Babylon to be an instrument of discipline upon his people. You know that God used the devil and limited the devil in his approach in Job chapter 1 and 2. You can only go so far and no further, Bubba. I mean, that's the paraphrase, but you know. And so, somehow, the evil one can be the instrument of God's judgment upon his church. So the question to ask is, well, well, then how does this prowling foe, this adversary, seek to devour? He's, He's a devouring pro, like a roaring lion. Well, how does he seek to devour? Well, Peter doesn't say specifically. But what Peter calls the adversary is somewhat insightful. He calls him, in the English, devil. In the Greek, it's diabolos. And diabolos means slanderer. The chief slanderer. It's just like when Paul was talking to the older women in Titus 2. And he said, look, this is the way sober-mindedness looks with older women. And one thing is, older women do not use slander. And the Greek word? Diabolus. Don't use devil talk. Well, that fits in with 1 Peter. What are the people around? What's the majority culture doing around his people whenever they're doing good works? Speaking of of them as evildoers, maligning them, and so forth. That fits. But one of the chief instruments that the evil one uses is slander, because that's his DNA, if you will. Jesus even told us that in John 8. He's He's a false one, he is. Ah, but... He can also easily come at us through personal temptations. 
It can come at us by influencing majority society to press in hard upon us. But also through many means, any means, to try to shatter God's household. Whichever set of approaches the evil one takes, what are we to do? We are to be sober and sharp. That's what he says right there at verse 8. Be sober-minded, it's the nafo word. Uh, be sober, like, don't be drunk, but actually be sober-sober, right? Be sober, be watchful, be alert. That's the language there. Together, it's the picture of a sentry who is on guard duty, who is vigilant because he's sure that the enemy is somewhere out there and he is not going to be caught unawares. Be sober and sharp. But also, we are to resist the evil one's ploys, as Peter goes on to say. We do this by being firm in our confidence in God. Resist him firm in the faith, verse 9. Now that firm in in your faith is, yes, our personal convictions, but it's even more the object of our convictions. Firm in the one who is the object of our faith the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who through His abundant mercy has caused us to be born again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ to a living hope and a lively inheritance. That's where we're to be focused. It's the content as much as it is the actual conviction. Further, our sharp, our sober and sharp outlook that resists the evil one comes from appreciating that we are part of a bigger project We're part of God's world rescue operation. We're part of a larger household. So Peter goes on to say that appreciation of this, we recognize then that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I appreciate Peter putting that in there because when we're suffering, we almost always think that we're the only ones. And so Peter is driving home again. It's not all about us at this place in this time, necessarily. We are connected with a, whole, a fellow household of God family. Or we're connected with fellow household of God family in all other places. Their plight is important to us. And as we begin to think about their plight, which is what Peter is driving at here, as we begin to think about their plight, it gives us perspective. It gives us perspective in our gospel-wrought resistance movement. That's what I'm going to call it for for a while. The resistance movement resists him steadfast in the faith. It's a worldwide resistance movement. How does it give us perspective? Well, there's two ways, very quickly. On one hand, when we really realize the suffering that brothers and sisters are going through in other places, It gives us an appreciation for those seasons and those occasions when we aren't suffering and we're safe and we're snug and we're unmolested. This last week, Ann and I were discussing some of the things we were reading about in Ukraine. And we were ruminating over the predicaments of many in Ukraine, especially the wanton violence and murder, it seems. And it made us stop, and it brought us both to give thanks for our relative safety and security in our own country. It doesn't mean that we're ignoring them. No, that recognition made us appreciate where we are 
that we don't deserve to be. And so having that perspective can build in us an appreciation when we aren't being molested. But on the other hand, Remembering the plight of our of other household of God family members places us then back inside our common experience. Our common experience. The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Our common experience. We're not in this struggle alone. My friends, this is the, the value of Christian agencies like Voice of the Martyrs. Their accounts of our brothers and sisters' fidelity and troubles aid us, aid us in our prayers, aid us in keeping this relationship we have that's a worldwide relationship at heart, close to heart. And so as we ponder what to do about God's judgment beginning at God's household, another aspect is for us to be sober and sharp as part of, conscious that we are part of, his world resistance movement. Resist the evil one steadfast in the faith. But finally, we're also to be sanguine and solid. Yes, I spent two hours looking for that word. Sanguine and solid. Verses 10 through 14. Here, dear brothers and sisters, here is the motivation for why we can humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and how we can remain sober and sharp. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while. It's been one of Peter's main themes from verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, to here the very end. It's not that we should ever be surprised there's suffering because we've been apprised that there will be seasons of suffering. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory and to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. To him be the sovereignty forever and ever. To him be the rulership over even this suffering and this predicament forever and ever. Amen. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Our sanguinity, our hope-filled confidence, our sanguinity, our hope-filled confidence is not in ourselves. It's not in our circumstances. It's not in our achievements. It's not in our resilience. It's not in um, any of those things. No, it's in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the one who does judge justly. In the one who has ransomed us from our futile ways, inherited from our forebearers through the priceless blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, as a lamb without blemish or spot. In fact, Peter puts it right here in verse 10. It's a confidence in the God of all grace. Our sanguinity, our hopeful confidence is convinced that He has called us to His eternal glory in Christ. And at the proper time, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and strengthen us. Lastly, dear friends, uh, it, it doesn't take this to know that does not take away the suffering. It doesn't yet dry up our tears. 
It doesn't remove our grief and our gut-wrenching agony. But it does lift our heads out of the gloom and the doom. Which is why Peter, I think, concludes the letter the way he does. After all of that intensity. He concludes it with some housekeeping details that is centered on solidity, on our being solid. Notice how he does it in verse 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Notice what Peter calls the heart of this letter. The true grace of God. That's what he says. Silvanus has been the amanuensis, has been the secretary. He's been writing this down as I have been briefly exhorting and declaring to you in this letter that this is the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God, which I have tried to emphasize through this whole series from day one. This whole letter is about the grace of God. And once the true grace of God has got hold of you, you can then stand firm in it. Then Peter goes on and says, she who is at Babylon chosen along with us. Who in the world is the she who is at Babylon? Well, lots of discussion and debate. The feminine for a church is not unusual, and so the likelihood is that He's using code language because now the NSA is peeking in on him or whoever, the CIA, whoever, right? And so he's using code language, but he's probably very likely referring to God's part of the household that's in the capital city of Rome, she who is in Babylon. But notice the comfort here, chosen along with you. That's how he began this letter. You are God's elect exiles. And now he ends and says, by the way, you're not the only elect exiles. There's also elect exiles, God's minority people, over in Rome. She who is in Babylon sends greetings to you. And Peter is therefore showing the breadth of God's grace made minority people with that comment. But also he mentions two brothers, Silvanus and Mark. The fact that he mentions their names implies that these Christians knew them, but it was a reminder that God's minority people is bigger than just their little group where, they're at, where they are. But then Peter ends. He ends with part of his desire that he has been working out in this whole letter. It's the last two sentences. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ, united to Jesus. Notice Peter's point. We are in this together, even in the suffering together. We are in this together. Jesus has placed us on God's good side together. That's justification. He has made us together a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his, for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of his dark out of darkness into his marvelous light once once you were not a people you were just tribes out there warring with one another but now by the grace of god you are the people of god once you were out there who did not have any clue what mercy was now by the grace of god you are the people who have been filled with mercy so he says therefore 
give one another a holy kiss. He's reemphasizing the value and the importance of the unity of God's people. Again, notice that the new commandment to love one another and unity in the church, the local church, is almost a top drawer issue in every New Testament letter. Here it is again. And why does he say that? Because we will weather this storm. We will weather this fiery trial together. Together. Tied close. Tied close to Jesus. Memories, manners, and mandates for God's minority people. Let's pray. Our Lord, we confess to you that we do not like being humble. We agree with the old burger ad. We like to do it, have it our way. We like to demand and fume and fuss because things don't always go our way. It's not easy for us to humble ourselves before you, Lord. You know that. We ask you that this true grace of God that Peter has been hammering home since chapter 1 would come home to us. That we may finally, really, humble ourselves under your mighty hand, trusting that the proper time is the proper time when you will exalt us, casting all of our anxieties upon you, because you really do care for us. We pray that you would help us to be sober and sharp. Oh, Lord, we, in our baptism, have sworn that we would fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Help us to be sober and sharp, to be resistant to his tactics, firm in our faith together. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your love so strong and so bold that we will then be able to love one another even more fully than ever before all the world may see and say, my, how those Christians love one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.